Welcome to the Climate Chronicles podcast by SkySpecs, the show where we explore the latest wind and renewable energy trends, industry expertise, and best practices that can help us deliver the most efficient energy generation in the world. Let's jump into the latest episode. Welcome once again to SkySpecs Climate Chronicles podcast, where we explore some of today's biggest issues facing the renewable energy industry. I'm Sarah Lights, Head of Marketing here at SkySpecs, and my co-host is our CRO, Josh Borrell, and our guest for today is Megan Devon, who is the Reliability Engineering Team Leader at BP Wind Energy. Welcome, Megan. Thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah, welcome. Well, Megan, how we usually like to get started is we do a couple warm-up intro questions that really have nothing to do with the podcast, just to have a little bit of fun. Um, and Today, our questions uh, start off with uh, uh, books. Um, what are some of like the, the best books that you've ever read? Well, I think one, one of my top ones um, is probably not going to be a super well-known book, but um, it's a book by a farmer named Joel Salatin. The title of the book is called Folks, This Ain't Normal. Um, And it actually talks about how modern farming practices, ways of raising livestock um, and kind of the ramifications of of modern agriculture um, have contributed to, say, a lot of problems, um, not only from the environmental perspective, but from a health perspective as well. Um, And he just talks about how historic, from a historical reference, the way we farm in general just is not normal for um, for the environment, for the animals that you're raising um, in many instances. Um, and uh, that book really has led me to a lot of the hobbies that, um, that I have now. One of them is uh, beekeeping, actually. Um, oh, so, yeah. Awesome. How long have you been uh, doing beekeeping? Um, about six years six years now. So I, I live on um, about 10 acres outside of Houston and we've got the chickens and sheep and, you know, a couple other uh, farm animals, but um, the bees are, are really interesting. And they're also great to have around for um, my vegetable garden because they really help with pollination a lot too. Yeah. So how did you find this book? Is it just something, a topic that you've always been interested in or? So there was a, um, there's a Netflix special. I, I'm struggling to remember the name. It's probably like eight years old now at this point. Um, but it was uh, really just talking about um, health health issues really um, around, you know, the, the modern American diet. And um, Joel Salatin, actually, the farmer that wrote that book was um, one of the, the big guests. And he's actually pretty well known in um, like the, the modern agriculture world now. Um, and he's also a really, really excellent speaker. So if you haven't ever heard of him, I highly recommend um, learning a little bit more about him and reading some of his books. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> All right. One more question for you. Um, okay. What fictional family would you want to be a member of? <laughs> so this one, I think, is really, really easy. Um, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. And I always thought it would be amazing to be a member of the Weasley family. Yes, (laughs) that's a great one. (laughs) Yeah, just all the shenanigans of really everyone in that family, like just sounded like a blast. 
Yeah. Yeah. And they always seem like a really tight knit group too. Yeah, definitely. That's a great, that is a great one. So Megan, can you tell us a little bit about, well, yourself, your, your role and kind of how you, you ended up in, in your current role? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm uh, like, like you guys mentioned at the beginning, I'm the reliability engineering team leader um, for BP Wind. And um, prior to this role, I was actually our uh, blades engineer for BP Wind. Um, I've been on the wind side for four years now. And prior to coming into wind, um, I actually worked in our oil and gas division. Um, So I'm a chemical engineer by background and spent the first eight or so years of my career in um, upstream oil and gas operations. So I worked um, in onshore gas plants. I also worked offshore, um, spent a a good bit of time in operations. And um, towards the end of that first eight years of my career, I realized I didn't necessarily see myself going down the senior process engineer path, but I also didn't quite know what was next for me. Um, so I just started, you know, reaching out, trying to learn about other parts of, of the greater BP. Um, and wind was one of those areas that um, I managed to find a contact for internally um, and set up a conversation. And conversation turned into a short-term assignment opportunity. And I knew within a month of being in wind that this was where I had to stay for the long-term. So the, the short-term assignment turned into the, the long-term assignment and here I am, you know, four years later after coming into wind. Awesome. What, what has what that been it? like? So, yeah, so like, that's exactly what I was meant. Yeah. So, <laughs> delay to challenging mine, but um, what's it like kind of working in renewable energy within uh, in an oil and gas company, and then also coming from from oil and gas, just in terms of maybe shared processes, or um, and also maybe how that may be different from other companies that are maybe only focused on, on renewable energy. Yeah, yeah. So the the environment, the overall working environment, the team is very different from the the previous role I came from in upstream. In that our our entire onshore wind team is 100 people or less. Um, whereas um, when I was in the upstream, I, I would meet people every day that I, I'd never seen. I didn't I didn't know their name. There's always um, lots of people involved in the the Gulf of Mexico team. Um, so the the team dynamic overall is very different, and I personally see that as a, a huge plus because I I really get to know. Um, really the entire business on a very personal level. I, I know about people's families and their hobbies and their kids and what their kids are up to. Um, so it really is a, a different team environment, um, and in my opinion, a very close-knit, close-knit team. So that's that's a huge benefit in my mind. And, um, that's also a big difference um, coming from a bigger upstream organization. And what was your second question, Josh? I forgot it already no i think you kind of hit on it it was basically just like um for companies maybe they're only focused on on renewable energy maybe just some processes or things that you're able to take away and learn from maybe the upstream oil and gas side or is there any kind of like what's that handover look like or uh, shared expertise yeah i think one one benefit um definitely was kind of i already had the rigors of say like operational life already instilled um, in that just like best practices, you know, for, for operating really any, 
any um, energy generating asset. Um, it you would think it would seem really different, but it actually um, was not that that steep of a learning curve uh, for me making that transition. So Megan, can you tell us a little bit about what a reliability engineer does at BP? What are what are some of your biggest focuses? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, you know, I used to be the the blades engineer. Um, so blades are a very very big focus for my team. Um, I also have mechanical and electrical engineers that report to me. So um, mainly the mechanical engineers remit is rotating equipment, i.e. drivetrains, gearboxes, bearings, um, focusing on those major components of, of the wind turbine. And then our electrical engineers are obviously supporting, you know, say BOP, um, generators, you know, turbine electrical components as well. So, um, you know, the day-to-day work is is very broad, very different, um, but in general, focusing on, you know, safe, reliable operations of, of all of our wind farms across the U.S. So a pretty big job. <laughs> it's a it, it's a big job, but it, it's um it's different every day, and that's yeah. one thing that I, I really enjoy about it is, you know, just thinking about the past few weeks here. Um, one week I was at the the ACP OMS conference leading a panel about Blaze, and this week I actually just got back from um, visiting one of our wind farms, um, kind of investigating a um, what I'll call major uh, major failure of a particular wind turbine component. So my job is different day to day. And um, that's one thing I, re- I really do enjoy about it. What about, um, so like what aspects of your of your job keep you keep you up at night? Can you speak about maybe some of the, the challenges that you think about a lot? Yeah, I think the the most obvious one is just the safety of, of our people that are running our wind farms. Um, it it is i'll say well known in the industry that there there can and are there can be and are sometimes major um major failures of either you know wind turbine components or entire turbines um and it, it it's not it's not my favorite thing to talk about but it is a reality of of this industry and so safety really is is always at the forefront um, for me and just keeping, you know, the people on, on the front lines safe. And that, that is our, my team's first priority is um, just making sure we're operating these assets as safely as we can. Um, I'd say another thing that doesn't really keep me up at night, but just concerns me about, about the industry going forward is how rapidly, um, these turbines are scaling and getting bigger and bigger. However, the way that we design and build these turbines is not substantially changing. Um, and so I think that's just a, a concern for me going forward is that we've we've scaled so quickly, but haven't fundamentally changed, you know, how we build and design these turbines and um, just thinking about Maybe we need to slow things down and like focus on the the fundamentals before we move on to like the next the next biggest um, baddest turbine, if you say. Yeah, are there are there ways or things that you guys are doing internally, even just like with your team to maybe address some of those those things, or whether that's working. I mean, I would imagine too. You mentioned uh, 
like in Orlando, um, just kind of bringing the industry together and having forums to, to talk about those things are really important. But I'm curious if there's kind of like other measures and, and things in place, uh, maybe even within your your team that you guys are doing to kind of address some of those things. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, staying in tune with the industry conversations is, is definitely a good start. Um, I think as an owner operator, you know, we we hold some of that responsibility to the industry in that there's this dynamic where um, everyone's always pushing the OEMs for the biggest, cheapest turbine constantly. And it seems like reliability, um, it, at least in those commercial conversations, can, can be a bit of an afterthought. And um, I always try to make sure that the right technical folks are in the right commercial discussions when we start talking about, say, either repowering an asset or say we're going to go and develop a new one. Um, I think it's really critical to get the technical folks and the, the folks who have been operating these assets, say, for the past 10 years, you know, who have that full breadth of operational experience, making sure they're in the room when those commercial discussions are happening, I think is really important. Agreed. So, Megan, you talked about how your the team that you're working with is a team of uh, about a hundred. So that's um, not a huge team for all of your onshore wind assets in, in the U.S. You are doing a lot. How do you go about making the decisions of of what to prioritize and and what to to focus on? Um, from just a blades perspective, or really all all of it? Really all of it. <laughs> It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I can tailor that conversation by using blades as an example, but it it could be, you know, applicable to say making decisions on which drivetrains we're going to replace or potentially attempt to repair. Um, It really starts with having good data. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for, for blades in particular, we've really built a good history, a good consistent history now across our entire fleet by having, this will be our fourth year of, you know, super consistent um, and regular inspections, blade inspections as a, as a full fleet. And um, I think it, it took us a while to, to get to that point where we really could predict you know, what was coming next. I think the first like year or two of, of really being consistent in those inspections, um, it was just trying to play catch up on say like cat, all the cat fours and fives. Um, it, it seemed like that was always our priority because there was always too, too many say cat four and five damages that he couldn't even, we didn't even have the budget nor the time, you know, to repair all of those. Um, but again, it starts with good data. And now that we have that year over year over year over year now, you know, history of watching how some of these damages propagate, we're starting, we're definitely starting to see where we're um, able to be, uh, I'll say less conservative. Um, and and we can make the decision now, uh, maybe that's a damage that we're just gonna watch now instead of immediately deciding to repair it because we've seen it for the past four years and it really has not changed at all. So what's the likelihood that it's going to all of a sudden decide to change, you know, in the next six months or so. So I think data and and good consistent um, 
history of that data has really helped us to um, really change how how we make decisions and and prioritize. But I mean, bottom line, there's everyone's always going to have a budget they have to manage to. Everyone's always going to have a repair season that they're going to have to manage to. You can't do repairs, you know, all year long. You want to optimize uh, for your low wind season, you know, when you're doing this um, this major work at your wind farm. So um, it's always a, a challenge. And, and, and even throughout the season, it can be a work in progress. You might think you have a, a great plan at the beginning of the season and then maybe you dig into one blade in particular and it's way worse than you expected just, you know, from the initial photos and might eat up, you know, a significant portion of your budget that you hadn't planned for. And it's kind of an ever evolving situation over, over your, um, your low end season. Is, is there any like kind of measurements or things that you guys have or have talked about internally, you talk, you talked about all that proactive maintenance you guys are doing and starting to get ahead of things and be able to, to predict. But what about in the form of even just within, with your, in your team on to say, okay, doing all this has showed that, uh, we have lowered O&M spend or reduced our risk or reduced unscheduled maintenance. Um, are you guys at that point where you're able to actually like kind of point to like a metric from a metric perspective or just to say, Hey, we, we feel by doing all this stuff, like our risk exposure has gone down quite a bit, or are you guys kind of working on those or any, anything to, to speak on on that front? I mean, I've definitely seen us having less, what I'll call catastrophic failures that, that can mean blades. It can also mean, um, say catastrophic unexpected drivetrain uh, failures. Um, we've definitely seen those come down over the years, and now now we really do get to play in the um, proactive space. Um, if there's any particular KPIs, nothing's coming to mind like immediately right now for me. But um, I definitely can say we've shifted from the reactive state where we had a plan at the beginning of the year, but then it all, you know, got blown to smithereens. The, the plan that we make now at the beginning of the year is starting to, for the most part, shape out to be the plan that actually does get executed. There's always ebbs and flows, but um, in general, you know, the, the plan is continuing to be the plan more often than not. <laughs> does that answer your question, Josh? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. And it makes a lot of sense. Right. And even it is, it is wild just to see how, how far the industry has come. And we all know there's still a long, still the early innings. Right. But even mm -hmm. thinking three, four years ago, the stuff that we were talking about was, was, was a lot different. And there are a lot of organizations like BP that made the investment and got ahead of some of these things and, um, and, kind of feel less as an industry on our heels than, than we did years ago. In some cases, the industry didn't even know that there were all these issues, but then when they said, yeah. hey, holy crap, this turbine's was the last 25 years and we're at year seven and eight and our failure rates are out of control. And then, cause that's when blade inspections got a lot of, a lot of attention. And um, it has been interesting to see. And I still think though, uh, we, we have a ways to go as, as an industry. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with your point on uh, it felt like people didn't even know, even just say like four years, you know, regular blade inspections were not the norm across, you know, most, most owner operators. And now I feel like that's a, a definite shift. Um, 
and that that's that's like the standard practice now is regular you know for most for most i'd say probably annual blade inspections whereas they maybe were not happening at all just four years ago and, and it's a tough and part of this is like all industries go through this maturing and, and evolution right but you, you talked about the budgets right we i remember being in rooms three three four years ago again when they're like we have no budget for blade repairs. What, what do you mean we have to, we have to repair? these are supposed to last. And yeah. um, obviously it's critical infrastructure. You have to maintain, maintain it. And that is a hard conversation to have when a lot of these projects, they have pro formas and need to perform to a certain level. So being able to kind of reallocate it is, this challenge is, is challenging. And I think things like IRA and repowering and all that stuff is, is super helpful, but it is just kind of the reality of the, the situation. Yeah. And I can relate to the, um, no budget comment <laughs> to um, <laughs> when, when I first came in, it, it was common that we, we did have a blade budget, but it would almost always get um, used up for something non-blade related, um, generally uh, gearbox related. Maybe we had a gearbox failure that we weren't planning for. Of course, really none of them at that time were we planning for. Um, but yeah, the, the blade budget very commonly got eaten up by other items and ended up with uh no blade repairs for some some sites some years so yeah it, it's definitely been a very quick shift i think in terms of at least blades um in particular you know focusing on those and realizing that yeah issues issues definitely are popping up and they're they're not lasting say the the 20 20 years and the, the promised design life i'll say kind of along those lines but megan if you could wave a magic wand and have a piece of software, some data or some technology to like better help you prepare for the future or manage these assets to extend the life. What do you think it would be? I think it would be um, what I'm going to call this Nirvana state of continuous uh, blade monitoring, blade health monitoring. Okay. So if you could have an idea of how healthy your blade is, you know, every day. Um, and, you know, there, there's there's tools out there. There's the acoustics monitoring side. There's the like vibration monitoring health side. There's there's lots of different ways that, you know, many, many groups out there are trying to approach it. But that that's one thing I'm hopeful that the industry can get to in the next few years is a a or maybe even a couple of different, you know, continuous blade health monitoring tools that, you know, are are accurate and can reliably tell you what is happening on a day-to-day basis with your with your blades. And and also, you know, can add a different realm of data other than say just the the visual inspection side as well. Cuz that's part of the picture, but there's a lot else that could be going on structurally that you may not be able to see just from a photo alone. That it's so interesting. You, you, you say that. And I think we, that kind of comes, comes up quite a bit. I'm curious from your, just to kind of take that a step further, what, what sort of things um, when you, when you said like on a, on a, on a daily basis, I also think too, you kind of have to strike that balance of like how much information is to information. Right. So you're not just kind of mm-hmm. like combing through. And, um, and, and it's kind of about the action. So I, 
Um, any thoughts on like what, what that, what that could look like? Is it more of just like, Hey, when something hits a threshold, then, then you're alerted or, mm-hmm. um, maybe sort of like kind of risk or yellow, uh, red, yellow, green light situation mm-hmm. like on the, on the blade level that changes mm-hmm. when you hit something, but I'm curious if you, maybe you could add, add onto it a little, a little bit more. Yeah, I think it would, it would greatly depend on what your trying to target with that tool for that particular turbine. Say you have a turbine or maybe a particular site that is prone to, I don't know, I'll just say root cracks, maybe in the like six meter mark. Um, and you know that um, potentially this structural issue is fatigue related. So it's more likely to pop up later on in your turbine's life. Um, and they say, we know relatively that these damages can progress pretty quickly. Um, but you have no other information, um, to, to gauge besides just the visual. Um, so I think one way you could use that is you could continue to operate your turbines and, uh, be alerted when say, maybe, you know, there's either a small crack there, or you suspect that there's a crack starting to propagate. You could be alerted when that crack really starts to propagate and you can ideally get more runtime out of that turbine than, you know, um, you taking a, a super conservative approach and just deciding to, to shut that turbine down. Maybe you have to make that decision in the middle of um, high wind season. And then you're looking at, you know, at least three months of, of downtime. Maybe you can save that downtime um, by, you know, having just in time, data about that particular crack propagation. Um, I think another avenue that we could we could use that that type of tool for this Nirvana state is um, particularly with lightning monitoring as well. Um, lightning is a very complex, <laughs> complicated topic um, for the industry. And I think even with all the data that we do have about um, lightning strikes, it's still very uncertain um, and very complicated again. Um, and I think if you could have an understanding of if a particular turbine definitely did receive a lightning strike, you know, you could tailor your actions appropriately. Maybe you immediately go do, you know, a one-off either ground-based or drone inspection on that turbine to, to assess, you know, the, the damage and, and make a, a just-in-time decision from that point. So I think that that's another application. I think there's lots of different applications and ways of thinking about using this continuous monitoring tool, but those are, I guess, two that, you know, kind of immediately come to mind for me. Uh, on, on that, I'm, I am curious, maybe how, how things work at within, within your organization, but like, what is that, that the handoff between like engineering and, and asset management look like? And when you're making decisions like that, right? I, I, I would imagine, maybe this isn't true, but I would imagine, right? If you have, um, we, we do talk a lot about like blade risk and sometimes um, in, in regards to like specific damage and structural risk of a specific turbine or damage, but then also layering in like 
asset management and uh, maybe operating strategy. So like if a certain site's going through repower or there's a higher PPA at one site uh, versus versus another. I'm curious like how that how that handoff works and and then kind of as a follow-up to that, would that be kind of a part of this blade condition monitoring to kind of layer in kind of rules and decisions at, at that level too? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it it's not perfect, I'll say, for us um, in terms of the handoff and whatnot. But we do try um, to really make sure our operational teams are our key stakeholders and decision makers. Um, it's not just the engineering team making a decision um, on on a particular action. You know, um, we we chat sometimes on an almost daily basis. It, it depends on the site and what particular issues we're we're trying to work through at the time, but um, we do try to make sure that our operational teams are, are key stakeholders and are involved, um, not only in the, the decisions, but the tools that we use to manage, um, say those cases and those decisions as well. I, I think it would be interesting too, Megan, like what, what are some of the major areas of focus like this this year for you guys? Are there kind of like big rocks that that you're, you're thinking about or it's kind of the, the flavor of the the month, if you will. Yeah, I think a, a big focus area for us this year is on um, newer turbines. Um, in that we we just recently repowered um, one of our sites, part of one of our sites last year, um, and I, I think you know as we talk more in industry with other owner operators, we have definitely come to the understanding that newer does not equal better um, necessarily. Just because you repower an asset does not mean that all your blade problems or all your drivetrain problems are going to magically disappear. Um, I think we're we're finding for sure with um, with newer turbines um, that they're not going to be automatically just foolproof and that, they, that you're going to have zero um, technical challenges or problems to deal with. Um, so I think that's a, a key focus area for us this year is, um, getting ahead of, of those issues while we aren't necessarily seeing major issues ourselves. We are definitely hearing from others in industry about this particular term and of what, what they're seeing. And we're trying to be as proactive and anticipatory as possible, um, really for, for all those issues. So Megan, you also talked a little bit about one of the, the things that you were thinking about for the industry that bigger isn't always better. Do you think that that's one of the, the biggest challenges that, that wind is facing right now? Or do you think that there are some other big challenges that, that we're going to face in the next few years? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm an, I'm an engineer, so I, I like to think about the, the technicalities of, of the industry growing. And I think that is definitely um, this push and pull situation, you know, as owner operators, we, we got to take some responsibility for that as well. But um, I think one challenge that, that comes to mind that, I think I, I think really needs to change in this industry overall is the communication and data sharing between um, OEMs and their customers. You know, it, it, it's always been the OEMs 
you know, I guess I'll say ways of working to, to hold everything so tightly. And, and I, for many reasons, I can see why, why they would want to do that. Um, but I think there's just gotta be some breaking point where we've got to start collaborating, um, and, and sharing, you know, critical technical information to make better risk-based decisions on, on these assets. That's, that's always been, I'll, I'll say one of my biggest pain points of my job is, um, just trying to pain points. And I'll say something that was very different for me coming from upstream oil and gas into wind is just how, um, closely held, you know, some of this technical information is that, that many would consider is maybe not proprietary information, not even close, but, um, the OEMs still, still call it as such and, and, um, just don't want to, don't want to share that information. So I think that is something that will have to change going forward. Um, how that changes, that's a whole, it's a whole different podcast potentially, yeah. <laughs> but something that I think really needs to change and I'm hopeful um, will change in the future. I was going to ask what the nirvana for data sharing is. <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know any, anything that's better than what it is right now. <laughs> that's, part two of the pod, that's part two of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, kind of along those lines, when you have lack of, of those data sharing on, on the OEM side of things, it, it makes making decisions um, on your service contracts probably a lot harder than, so how do you, how do you kind of go about those decisions and, and uh, moving forward? Um, it, I don't think there's a blanket statement of... Yeah of, you know, it's this strategy at every site. I think it's going to be very dependent on your site, on, on your, your technology and the risks of that technology. I, I personally don't think there's a, a one size fits all approach. Um, even within say just one owner operators fleet. Um, I think it's going to depend on maybe the PPA that you have in place. And, um, if that PPA is worth potentially trying to renegotiate or not. Um, I think it's going to be very dependent on a lot of factors that, again, is probably too complicated <laughs> for just one podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast. On all of this. <laughs> Josh, do you what, what, are you, what are you most, okay. most excited about, like in the, in the industry? Are there like certain things that you see that you're like, oh, this is going to be going to be awesome or stuff maybe that you're, you're working on could be related to like growth or, or new things that you're, mm -hmm. you're doing? Um, so one area that BP in particular is um, very much leaning into is hydrogen. Um, and I, I see that being a big part of at least BP onshore winds future. Um, and that, you know, we probably will not be exclusively selling electrons to the grid. We will likely be supporting, you know, hydrogen hubs, um, massive electrolyzers. Um, and I'm, I'm excited and yet a little bit terrified of how, um, how that will shape out and how we need to change how we operate our assets. Um, but I am, I am very excited to, to see, um, 
to see that that change in the future. And um, again, more to come in this space, um, hopefully from from BP and others as well. But um, I'm particularly excited about how um, our fleet and our team, you know, will will evolve to support um, to support our hydrogen strategy. One final question for you, Megan. Um, is there anything you wish we would have asked you or you think is really important our listeners understand about the work that you're doing? I don't know. I think this is the one that I didn't prepare for. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think we covered um, really my soapbox um topic if i yeah. had if i had to call it, yeah, yeah if i had to call them such a thing no no i don't i don't think there's anything okay well thank you so much for joining us today it was really great chatting with you yeah thank you guys for having me it was great to be here and, much and it sounds like here. we may have to schedule another couple podcasts too to yeah to go deeper on those <laughs> yeah on those other topics. Yeah, Megan, we, we obviously like appreciate like ev- everything. I mean, working with you guys over the past few years has been been so amazing, and um, I'm I'm excited for us to grow our grow our partnership, and also to just commend you on the on the work, even with with ACP and and the the Blade Working Group, and definitely like those those forums a, a few weeks ago are, are definitely key for for the industry to to move forward. So I thoroughly enjoyed the the panel. So it's good. 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 Glad it was helpful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Climate Chronicles brought to you by SkySpecs. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to know when we release the latest episodes. If you really liked it, make sure to give us a five-star review. See you next time.